Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 66 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Julie Tolek about branding and what it means to have a human practice. Today's podcast is sponsored by Smokeball. Turbocharge your small law firm with case management from Smokeball. Watch a two-minute demo at smokeball.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive, and we love the job that they do for us. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial. If you enjoy the show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on the red support the podcast button to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So Aaron, today we're going to talk about two not related, but uh, equally absurd opinions on fees. Absurd? Is that how you pronounce that these days? How do you pronounce absurd? Absurd? All right. <laughs> so. Absurd sounds like you're 1920s British, like you're from Downton Abbey or something. All right. Well, now that we've gotten my British this is background absurd. <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> so, the first of these two dropped last uh, week when we were recording this podcast, so a few weeks ago. Um, the Kansas Supreme Court, in an ethics opinion, uh, sanctioning a lawyer, said that it was unethical for a lawyer not to track their time in case they need to do a refund. Um, which was kind of interesting. And then more recently, uh, the New York State Bar Association has said that it's totally okay to bill your clients for the time of your free unpaid legal interns. Okay, so in Kansas, if I advise business startups and charge a flat rate of $300 for LLC documents, I have to also log my time for filling out those forms or something even though i'm not charging people for it just in case yeah that's the implications of the supreme court's decision which made a very um broad statement that it is unethical for a lawyer not to track their time here's what the the court actually said upon termination a lawyer needs to be in a position to accurately determine the fees earned to date that requires lawyers to keep time records reflecting actual time spent in the representation. It's a pretty blank statement. Yeah, I mean, as I recall that case, it turns out it was like a really obvious bad example of lawyering. And therefore, some people are saying maybe this isn't meant to be a broad statement about lawyers in general, just a clear indictment of this guy. Yeah. But, but the statement itself does not indicate that. No, I mean, it, it, you know, I, th I think, you know, th and this is speculation, my, my thought is that if you have some other way of indicating uh, how you've spent your time and how the value that you've delivered, you might be okay. For example, your flat fee retainer might say, uh, might look like a menu. And, you know, so pre-suit investigation is going to be $3,000. The initial complaint is going to cost $750. The this first round of discovery is going to cost $2,000. So if, if you did something like that, you might be in a better standing if you show up before this court. But I will say, like, this is the problem with flat fees is that if your client wants out early, 
it, uh, ethically, you have to you have to return the unearned portion of the fee. And how do you decide what's unearned when it's just a flat fee? Right, especially in an era of document automation where you're no longer selling the typing of documents, you're selling the strategy that goes into knowing what you want to do. And so if you've fully loaded all of the data into your document automation software and figured out which clauses you want to use, but you haven't hit print or assemble yet, right? have you done 90% of it or 0% of it at that point? Yeah, and it, I think it varies, obviously. You know, when, when there's a long and ongoing litigation, you're going to be able to talk about what you've done. Um, you know, this, this hasn't happened to me much where a client bailed on me in the middle of a representation. Um, one, the one time it happened, I started out with a client, uh, circumstances changed, and it became clear that, you know, there was, no, there was nothing worth me doing at that point. I, I mean, I could have continued litigating, but that probably would have been unethical and definitely inadvisable. So I contacted the client and, and she obviously she wanted her money back. Um, she needed to hire a different lawyer for different things. And I said, look, here's what I did. You tell me what you think is fair. And then I didn't argue with her because I'm not going to get into a fee dispute with somebody over a few thousand dollars. You know, if that happens to you a lot, <laughs> then maybe that's not a good way to go about it. But if it happens to you a lot, maybe you've got other problems. Well, and certainly your example is good customer service, but it doesn't imply what the rule should be. Right. It's a way of avoiding this problem, but not a way of solving it. Right. It also seems like this, like the Kansas Supreme Court does not understand how law practice actually works. Oh, oh yeah. And and the same thing ends up uh, you, coming up when you talk about contingent fees uh, and attorney fee awards. Um, you know, I, I sued people on contingent fees and the, the statute that I sued under uh, the FDCPA includes attorney fees when you win. And, I, you know, that meant hours. I, I had no way of standing up in court and saying, here's the flat fee I would have charged. Right. Um, the courts don't work that way. And we, we've kind of been pushing those things under the rug. But uh, when it comes to flat fees, if we really think they ought to apply across the board, then we need to come up with a way to value things that work for attorney fee petitions and that work for when the case terminates early. And... Um, I think that's what the Kansas Supreme Court decision says, really, is that because we don't have anything else to hang our hat on, you should have tracked your time. Or we just get software, the future software that automatically knows everything we're doing, whether we're on the computer or not using our Apple Watch or whatever. <laughs> then we don't even need to think about it. If someone asks, we can just download our, our history of everything we did for the last year. Yeah, I mean, something like Chromita could be a partial solution. Oh, I'm thinking um, Apple Watch. This is a wearables thing. Oh, sure. Totally. All right. There you go. <laughs> well, then the second link I mentioned says that if you have unpaid legal interns, you can go ahead and bill them to your clients as either fees or costs. I don't understand that. I don't, <laughs> like, I don't understand how that is something the Bar Association says is okay. I don't understand how that's legal or ethical. I don't get that at all. If there literally well, is no cost, you can then charge a cost? That makes no sense to me. Well, remember, there is the preliminary problem of can you even have unpaid interns in the first place? Right. And, and the loophole there is if they're like getting credit through school, then it's for school, then it's not slave labor. Right. Um, but even that loophole yeah, I is mean, super dumb from my perspective. But setting that aside, if you're not paying them okay to bill your clients for them? Is that because they still have 
office space overhead? What I mean, what what is the logic there? That makes no sense. I mean, the 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 board pointed out that your fee cannot be excessive, but it's not clear what that means. Um, you know, I, I think there's some justification for billing because, you know, you're paying the rent on their office space or something, assuming that you are. Um, you know, I think lawyers will be quick to argue that, well, I have to supervise them, but bill for your time supervising them. Don't bill for right, your, that's your time. intern's time. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's a it's a pretty absurd thing, even if it, Is it winds up being... <laughs> it's absurd in the way that I pronounce it. Um, even if it winds up being ethical, you know, I can't imagine clients would be happy about that. And and maybe this is even how it how it came about. Uh, I'm not sure. But well, I can't imagine interns would be happy about it either if they looked at a bill and saw they were being right. charged out at even twenty dollars an hour, and they're making none as their law school student loans rack up because of this loophole where they have to be free labor in order to pad their resumes in order to have a chance at a job. But isn't it a matter of degree? I mean, this is how law firms have been making their bread and butter for decades, right? You you pay somebody 20 bucks an hour and you bill them out at 200 bucks an hour. Sure. Same thing. Uh, well, I don't think the discrepancy is ever that big. And, and the difference is like these people are literally not being paid anything. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that when I, let me, I could do some quick math in my head. I think I was being paid about 17 or 18 bucks an hour as a young associate. And they were definitely billing me out at about 150, 160. Yep. Yay. So, law practice. What a sustainable <laughs> business model. I, I mean, I think, I think what it is, is the, the, the hourly rate that you're paying your uh, associates has nothing to do in theory with the hourly rate that you're charging your clients. Those are completely unrelated things except for the fact that they both occupy similar spaces. And this is why clients are finally pushing back. <laughs> I think so. Which is actually kind of a nice segue into my conversation with Julie Tolek about human law practice, because that's kind of what she's getting at there. So here's my conversation with Julie. My name is Julie Tolek. I am founder of Think Pink Law, where we do law differently. I consider myself a lawyer for humans, and I practice firearms law, family law, and family law mediation, and estate planning, and I am in Metro West Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Uh, let's start with the first thing you said, which is, what does what do you mean by having a human practice? So I like to say that I'm a law firm for humans because part of the concept behind my firm and one of my goals is to um, treat people like they are human beings and not just um, another number or a dollar sign or a case um, and to make that human emotional connection. And for me, that's kind of the most important thing is to be able to talk to people and to create an environment where they feel comfortable instead of feeling intimidated. Where, by the way, where does Think Pink come from? You didn't mention that in your uh, in your little bio. Think Pink has a very interesting story. Uh, when I was in law school, I started a blog called Legally Blonde Boss for mm -hmm. Boston, and I still maintain it today, so you can check that out too. I always thought but, it was Legally Blonde Bows, so I'm glad oh. that you said that. <laughs> for years, I've had Legally Blonde Bows in my head. Oh, 
probably thought, well, why? Why? What does that mean? <laughs> yes, yeah, after the airport. I was looking up like different airport gotcha. codes, and so I figured that would work. Um, clearly not very good branding, I guess, maybe <laughs> my beginning, uh, my intro to branding. Um, but when I was in school, so I started this blog, and because it's legally blonde, of course, the color of the blog was pink. And I blogged about being a law student in Boston, networking tips, study tips, observations, basically anything that I thought was uh, either very interesting or very useful or just really weird. And I would just write about it. And I tweeted at the same time um, about what I was writing. And I, I started cultivating this network of people who knew me because I was Legally Blonde Boss and because I was pink. And they made that connection. Gotcha. And so when I started my practice, when I was trying to figure out how to differentiate myself from all of the attorneys in Boston and how to stand out, knew I didn't want to use my name in my law firm name. So I thought, okay, what kind of a brand can I create? And I had kind of branded myself unknowingly, um, not on purpose, just by doing what I like to do, which is talk to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my colleagues, actually many of my colleagues said, you have to do something pink. You have to do something pink. Everybody knows you're pink. And I thought, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's going to fly. Can I really do it? Um, and I decided to take the risk and do it because I figured even if people don't like it, they'll still remember it because <laughs> right. how could you forget? Well, memorable is a big part of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, later on, back to the human aspect of things, it's because it's think pink law and it's not such and such Esquire or, you know, partner names or something, I think it brings it back to that aspect of being not intimidating and kind of being a little bit silly even to where people are not scared to inquire about, you know, what the firm is or what we do as attorneys or, or to communicate. What do I say we? I mean me. Um, what I do as an attorney and, and to communicate with me because um, I hope that it provides and I think that it does provide more of a welcoming um, introduction as a name instead of um, having a bunch of last names that you can't pronounce right. in a name. So this is just you, right? This is a, a true solo practice. It is a true solo practice. I wear... Oh, like, I don't know, a million hats a day. <laughs> right. um, so I have some outside support with um, client and calendar management mm -hmm. because I have clients that, you know, typically, <laughs> oh, I have a simple question, just one question mm -hmm. for you. Can you just answer this one question? And that's never one question, and it's never a simple answer. Um, so instead of getting sucked into a phone call um, with a client who needs more than just five minutes of my time, I have some support staff. So tell me about that. What do you, who do you use for that? So I actually have um, another uh, position in another firm where I'm a part-time associate at a firm called Skylark Law and Mediation. Mm -hmm. And part of our deal in the, um, I guess, quote unquote, rent that I pay them includes using the office admin. Um, I don't want to say using, she is a person. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, using her services. Human, um, Julie, human. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, sorry, Melissa. Um, is uh, asking her to help me with certain things um, with client management and calendar management. Uh, so they have an office manager and an admin, Melissa and Ilya. And so I, I tend to if it's a client that I don't know that was an outside referral and I haven't communicated with them before, I'll usually have um, Melissa or Ilya give them a call back to get more detail so I know a little bit more about what kind of a conversation needs to happen with the client. And, um, and they manage my calendar when I cannot get to it, too. So it, it does help a lot. 
Um, but other than that, I do everything myself, the marketing, the billing, wow. the admin, the actual legal work that has to happen. Now, you said that being human means to you uh, what sounds to me a little bit like uh, you are trying to emphasize work-life balance and not let your practice take over your life. Is that right? <laughs> That's funny. Is that a trick question? No. Um, <laughs> I like to think that I somehow managed to do it. Um, I was at Lawyernomics on the panel, and um, Nika Kabiri, who was with Avo, actually asked me. She well, she said, "Oh, it, so it is possible. So you show, you know, you're um, an example of the fact that it is possible to do it. It is possible to get it all done and to manage it all." And I said, "I." I guess so, because I'm doing it. And so I think when you're in the grind of doing it, you don't really realize how things happen and how they magically pull everything together. But I think part of the passion of doing what I love to do makes these kind of miracles happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being able to get everything done and do everything. And I, I was actually just talking to another solo colleague today and it's a holiday in Massachusetts because it's Patriots Day and it's the day of the Boston Marathon. So locally, everything's closed. And mm -hmm. he called me and he said, are you working? And I said, yeah, I'm working from home. He said, yeah, me too. He said, you know, it feels like nothing is ever done and there's always stuff to do. And it's just, you know, I keep waiting for that day where there's nothing to do. And I said, that's kind of just the new normal, I think, for, for solos. And you just figure out how to make it work. And I, I, you know, if you don't have anything to do, I think that's a bad sign. I we've, think. <laughs> we've been having a conversation recently about there's a difference between healthy work-life balance and regular unhealthy work-life balance. Everybody yeah. has a balance in a different place. I like to work. Um, I like what I do and I work a lot, um, but I enjoy it. And then I go spend time with my kids and my wife. And, um, and I think I have it balanced pretty well for me, but it might be too much or too little work for other people. So, um, right. So I don't think you can have a commandment that says work-life balance means you only work 40 hours a week and the rest of the time you shut it down. And I suppose you can't really do that as a lawyer. Your clients place demands on you and you have due dates and you sometimes you have to pull all-nighters. Right, right. And I think especially as a solo, it's especially important because I am the only person that does the work or that I'm the main contact, even though I do have some support uh, with, you know, client management and schedule management, I am the person that they call when something's happening with the case. I am the person that they email. So even if I wanted to take a full day off, I can't because it's my duty and responsibility to be there. And I, and I do enjoy it for the most part. I always say, even when I hate it, I love it. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, it's definitely, it is a balance. And I think for solo practice, practitioners, it's a different kind of balance. You get credit for having an innovative firm, um, but you were clarifying to me that you don't think innovation is just about technology. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Sure. I think innovation, I think the first thing people think of is using technology and using the newest kinds of software and communication styles. And, and I definitely agree that that is innovative. But for me, innovation can also be a philosophy. And I... I always say that I get very romantic about talking about law and my firm and branding because I really enjoy it. And I really like to focus on the theory behind a lot of these things like branding and marketing and building a practice and, and the, and the philosophy behind, you know, why this, you know, how people think and how lawyers think and how clients think and making that connection. And so my part of my innovation is the fact that I do that I do law differently and that I'm a lawyer for humans and I take a different approach and I have conversations with people instead of lecturing them. I've had so many clients come to me for consultation after they've already been to see other attorneys and 
And I, you know, I'll say something funny. I had one guy come in, he had like a 12 page criminal history and he was worried about some little thing. And I said, you're worried about that little thing and you have 12 pages of criminal history. I said, you have bigger problems. And he laughed and he said, thank you for being so candid and talking to me like a person instead of just reciting law at me. He said, I've gone to three other attorneys and all they do is tell me what the law is. And nobody has talked to me like I'm a person sitting here with, you know, other feelings other than just the situation. Um, and I think it's, I, you know, innovation is about being uh, different and using d- different thoughts and different practices and different methodologies and um, incorporating them into stuff that you already do. And so for me, harnessing my personality and the fact that I like to have conversations with people really works with my firm and with, works with the people that I meet. We had Peter Karyanis on from Conduit Law and he said sort of the same thing. His firm was using technology, but um, about as, as technologically advanced as they got were laptops and email, and they just got bought for a lot of money um, because their innovation was more about catering to the client's needs, showing up in their office, um, and not, you know, high-flying technological solutions. So, um, in some ways, it appears that the innovation that's not technological could be even more valuable, so... You talked about uh, branding a bunch, both from Think Pink to your your the original blog, Legally Blonde Boss, and um, and that you like to philosophize about branding. What is that? How does brand figure into what you do? And how do you think about the interplay between brand and reputation, which is something I'm I've been trying to figure out so that I can talk intelligently about. So maybe you can do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they think of branding, and this is true for lawyers, and I think just generally that people think they focus more on the visual aspects of branding. So like a logo and colors and fonts and a website and business cards and how those things are uh, create consistency and continuity. And I think the philosophy uh, of, of branding and the psychology is kind of lost. And, and I think... I say the brand of a firm is kind of the ribbon that runs through all of the pieces of the firm and connects everything together, and it's what's reflected to the outside. So your me as a solo, my personality is a lot of my brand because I am a solo, but it doesn't but that applies to me as a solo. If it's a bigger firm, there's a firm culture there that is reflected in the brand. There's the interaction with clients or potential clients that is reflected in the brand. There's the voice of the firm. You know, if the firm was a person, what would they sound like? For me, that's easy because I am the firm. It sounds uh, like you're thinking of brand as like a manifestation of your values. Yes, exactly. It's it's the values. It's the 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 core. Um, Which and is like, different and, than marketing materials. Yes, it is different. <laughs> it's different than very different than marketing materials. And I I like to say that the and I read this somewhere and I can probably dig up where I read it. Um, somebody else said it. I didn't come up with this and I don't remember exactly who, but I don't want to take credit for it, but it made sense to me. Um, and I read somewhere that marketing is a, or branding is a pull effect where you pull people into doing business with you through your, through your efforts of marketing and advertising, which are push, um, 
which do a push out where you push out information, but the actual branding aspect is what turns everything around and pulls people back in to do business with you. And I really like that because I think it, you know, that's, that, that's really what it is. It's this connection that everything from your visuals to your logo, to how you communicate with people, to the firm culture, to whether you wear jeans or whether you wear suits that makes up the brand. And that's what clients are going to either be attracted to or not. And it's what's going to pull them in or not, depending on who your market is. We're going to take two minutes for a message from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about the difference between reputation and brand and how they complement one another. Wish there was a case management system built just for your area of law? Smokeball comes with over 200 different matter types to support the way you work. Turn case details into documents with automated templates, convert and email PDFs with just a click, and stay on top of every detail and task with workflow tools. Check out Smokeball for your small law firm and never miss a detail again. Watch a two-minute demo at smokeball.com lawyerist today. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, we're back. Uh, Julie, tell me, do you think much about reputation versus brand? Because this is something that I've sort of been trying to figure out. I, I think branding is sort of something that you... Um, that you do, um, that you you elect to do. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to pr- portray myself in this way. I'm going to dress this way in my office. My uh, that that kind of stuff. Um, whereas your reputation, I think, is something that other people give to you. Um, it's based on their subjective impression of who you are. Um, but I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And that everything is best when the two things are in alignment. Yes, I think, yeah, I, yes to no. I agree with you with some things and I disagree with you with some things. And it might, Good. you know, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong, obviously. I think that um, there's a lot of overlap between branding and reputation. I agree that branding is something that you, you do and that you say, I'm going to do this, this, and this. For me, however, my I branded myself without knowing what I was doing, or without knowing that I was doing it, rather. Um, I mm-hmm. branded myself by writing and communicating and just being myself. And so it was, now that I... Now that I know what you know, content marketing is and what branding is and all this stuff, I can go back and I can see, oh, yeah, that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing. I was writing blogs that helped people and they connected with me. Um, but I didn't know that I was doing it at the time. So I think brand doesn't have to be something that's done on purpose. But once you... And I, and I think that it shouldn't always be something that's done on purpose either because you don't want to lose the authenticity of, of and I'm going to use myself as, as an example, I guess, but mm-hmm. I don't want to lose who I am by trying to brand something that I'm not because for me, the whole, my whole innovation is, because, is acting like myself and being myself first and then a lawyer second and, and that's my brand. And if I 
did something else more purposefully, it might change how my brand is and how I connect with people. And I think, you know, back thinking about reputation, I think reputation, even though it overlaps with brand and branding, I can see that reputation might be something that comes after your branding. It's it's the creation. It's what your branding creates is a reputation. And Ideally, unless everything yeah. is out of whack. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I think... You know, I, I always, um, one of the things that I mentioned at CleoCon in the fall was that if you, I asked like an exercise that I posed out to the audience and I said, have people that you work with, have a few clients and then have people that you work with in the office or other colleagues write down words to describe what they think your brand is and then, and what they think your reputation is. And then take a look at that. And if it doesn't fit with what you think your brand is and what you think your reputation is, then you're not doing something right. And so I think that they can overlap a lot but I think that they don't necessarily have to overlap. Um, but I, I definitely think that a reputation, whether you like it or not, is going to be created from, from your brand. But you can also create a reputation without having a brand. I really like that exercise of asking your friends and colleagues to write down what they think your brand is and what they think your reputation is. That seems really valuable to me. Yeah, and I had actually, I had emails. Um, somebody emailed me afterwards after they went home and, and tried it and they said <laughs> it was so eye-opening because mm-hmm. I guess said it wasn't bad, but it was different than what they thought they were doing and um, they really found it very valuable. So I kind of like that one too. It's one of my favorites. Very cool. Um, I want to, you, you mentioned this, early on um, that you are part-time with another law firm. I don't think you mentioned, but it's true. I think that it's a family law firm. So you're working part-time for a firm that, at least in theory, competes with your own solo practice. How does that come about and how how does it work? Yeah, so it's um, I'm very lucky, first of all, I have to say. Uh, um, Scott Law and Mediation and Justin Kelsey, the managing partner, and everybody there that I work with are just, I mean, they're my best friends, honestly. I, they were not my friends until I started working with them, but through working with them, um, they, they've become people that you know I know and that I can count on, and people that I would hang out with anyway, regardless of whether I was going to the office. So I'm very, very lucky. And it kind of happened just by chance when I started my practice at the end of 2013, at the beginning of 2014, there was a divorce 101 something class, something at the Boston Bar Association. And so I went to that and Justin Kelsey uh, was teaching along with another mentor of mine and I found it really valuable. And so I gave him my card at the end of the program and I asked him if I could keep in touch because I figured he could be a mentor to me too maybe if he had time. And um he looked at my card and he said, oh, wow, your branding is so cool. So we kind of bonded over branding. And then he reached out to me and we had lunch and he said, you know, do you want to do some work for us as an of counsel? And I said, yeah, that would be, that would be great. Like I would love to. And I, I ended up, um, I would call him a lot for help on cases that I had on family law cases because it, I, I was super new and I didn't know how to do anything really. Um, and so we ended up, we were talking a lot. And so then I started working for him and he was mentoring me for the work that I was doing with him. And then his partner at the time, Matt Trask was a uh, it's a firearms attorney. He still is a firearms attorney, but he works elsewhere now. Um, and he said, Hey, do you want to do some firearm stuff? And I said, sure, I'll try that. And I ended up loving doing that too. And so Matt Trask left to work for Remington arms 
in Ilion, New York, and I took over the firearms practice of Skylark Law, and they eventually Skylark ended up giving me the practice, so Think Pink has all of the firearms practice now. But I still do family law, and I still do family law for Skylark. And it's kind of a, you know, we've come, it's like a, it's an interesting pattern because, or path, excuse me, an interesting path because, again, a lot of attorneys are competitive with each other. And I think it takes, you know, the right type of people to be able to come up with uh, an arrangement like this um, in a relationship like this, because I don't think just anyone could be able to do it. But I think it, you know, goes to show you that you never know what can happen with the seeds that you plant out there. You never know how somebody that's a mentor to you might end up working with you later on and what opportunities could come of that. And so... And you obviously have a different level of trust than somewhat one might expect oh, when it comes yeah. to where the cases originate and which cases right. belong to who. And Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it definitely takes, you know, a a special group of people to be able to work together like this. And, um, you know, and, and, and Justin always says to me, you know, however it works out, it works out. He says, you know, you fit in with the firm and I trust you. So whatever we need to do to make it work, we will make it work. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And I, like I said, I mean, I love going to the office. I go to the office and I basically hang out with my friends all right. day and, <laughs> and do work. Well, so that's probably the best way to have a firm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty awesome. Very cool. Well, Julie, thank you so much for telling us more about your practice today. It's great to finally sit down and chat with you after years. years. Um, <laughs> you, you just let me know that I'd been reading your blog for many years before I even <laughs> knew who you were otherwise. So um, it's been great. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. Subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.